Okay, so uh, chapter 10. Now, 1 Chronicles is a, is a long set of names. The first uh, nine chapters or so are names after names. Now that we've come to chapter 10, we've come to sort of the narrative section of the book. And this will continue pretty much into uh, all the way through the next book as well. These are stories uh, of occurrences in, in the nation of Israel, things that have occurred in the nation of Israel and in many ways have established who the people are and what they are doing and why they do what they do and so on. The uh, focus of First Chronicles is King David. However, before we get to King David, we've got to figure out how we got there. And so the author is going to introduce us to the story of the end of King Saul's life. So chapter 10 has to do with the death of King Saul. Saul is not the focus of this chapter. As a matter of fact, um, if... Uh, this was all we knew about King Saul. We wouldn't know very much about King Saul at all. We would just know how he died. Uh, most of the information we know about King Saul comes from uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And so we'll spend some time kind of flipping back and forth to 1 Samuel. Saul is mentioned maybe in other chapters of this book, but as, as the main point of only chapter 10. However, in the book of 1 Samuel, he is mentioned 297 times in that book. Clearly, he is the focus of 1 Samuel. David, who we'll begin looking at next week, he will be the focus of 1 Chronicles. Now, the first instance that we have of meeting Saul is found for us in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and in chapter 10. Now, I shared that story with you a couple of weeks back. Most of you were here, but if you weren't, uh, or if you've forgotten, the general idea is that uh, Saul's father's donkeys have wandered away from the pen, so to speak. And they were, they were missing. They were gone. And so Saul was probably a young man at the time, and his father trusts him enough, but you know, he's not going to have him uh, you know, driving a car or something like that. But he trusts him enough. You can go find the donkeys for us. And so Saul and a servant, they go and they begin to look for these donkeys. They're gone for day after day after day. And finally, Saul kind of whispers over to his servant, his father's servant, he says, you know, we better get back. We've been, we've been gone quite a while now. Dad's going to begin to worry more about us than he is about the donkeys. Let's make our way back there. And the servant says, okay, I understand. He said, but you know what? Here we are. We're just outside of the city where the prophet Samuel lives. Let's just go check with him. Maybe he knows. Now, God had been working in, in the prophet Samuel's life, and he had told him, tomorrow someone's going to come and knock on your tent door so to speak, and he's, that's the one who's going to be the next king of Israel. Anoint him to be that. And so here comes Saul into the town and finds Samuel, and he knocks on the door, and Samuel has a little smile on his face because he knows something Saul doesn't know. And he says to Saul, stick around. You're going to come over. You're going to have dinner with us. And Saul says the most amazing of things. He says, me? You want me to come and, and have dinner at your house? You know, you're the prophet of Israel. I'm just a guy from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a nobody. And he says, well, you come. And that afternoon or that evening when they're having their dinner, Samuel explains to him, you're going to be the, next, the king, the first king of Israel. Well, Saul responds in somewhat of disbelief. Well, a few chapters later in chapter 10, Saul and uh, Samuel and, and all of the people uh, are going to gather together, and Samuel is going to anoint Saul. And we read this. This is in verse, starting in verse 20 of chapter 10. It says, Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? 
And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Well, at this point in Saul's life, he's going to be named the king. Where is he? He's hiding. He's embarrassed. Uh, He's shy. He's timid. It's as if just a moment ago when we announced Kevin and Scott Webster, if we couldn't find one of them. Because, you know what, I can't go up there. I'm too embarrassed to go up there. And they're hiding in the bathroom or something. And we all got to go in and drag them out of the stall and bring them up here. Well, that's what Saul is. Saul is hiding himself because he is too shy, too timid. He's a man of humility. And this is a fantastic place. We might look at that and say, man, you've got to stand tall. You've got to be proud. This is a great place for Saul to be. It is a great place for anyone that seeks to be used by the Lord. Lord, I'm available if you want to use me. But Lord, I need your help. I'm humble. I'm shy. I'm timid here. It's a great place for God to work through him. So Saul begins in a great place. If we look at chapter 11, we see the story will continue And what we begin to discover is not only is Saul a man of humility, but he is also a man of character. And he is a man that, as the king, will become more concerned about other people than just how it plays for himself. How will I benefit? What will I get out of this? That's not what Saul is, how he's approaching things when he begins. So in 1 Samuel chapter 11, we have the story of when Nahash, Nahash was an Ammonite king or general, and he comes against some of the the people of Israel, a people that lived on the other side of the Jordan River, over by the area of Amnon, or today Ammon, Jordan. They live over in that particular area. But these are Israelites. And this man Nahash, this Ammonite, he comes to Jabesh-Gilead, and he surrounds the city. And he basically says to the people, give up or you're dead. And the people realize, we're dead. We better give up. So they come to Nahash, and they simply say, "Would would you work out a treaty? You know, some sort of an agreement. Can we be your servants and you won't kill us? Or something like that. And Nahash says, yes, you can be our servants, but here's the stipulation. All of your men, your adult men, must gouge out their right eyes. And so, I know. And so the children of Israel, they're sort of like, huh, let me think about that. Uh, The verse is, on this condition I make a treaty that you gouge out your right eyes and thus bring disgrace upon the people of Israel. And so the children of Israel are like, wow, we got to think about that. I, I think I'd rather die, you know, than have my eye gouged out. So let me think about it. Will you give us seven days? And Nahash said, yeah, sure, take, take eight days if you want. He said, yeah, take seven days and come back with your answer. And so it's during that, de- that period of seven days, they send people to Saul, essentially. And they said, we're in trouble. This guy's given us seven days. We need your help. Can you help us? Would you help us, please? Now, it says in 1 Samuel 11, verse 6, it says, when Saul received word, of what was about to happen. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God rushed upon him when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, and he cut them in pieces, and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people as they came out as one man. Now, I used to work at Ewing High School. And one of the things at Ewing High School, and I'm sure a lot of high schools and and places where young people gather, is they have a language unto themselves. There there are word phrases and meanings that are certainly not in any of our dictionaries, but the students know what they're talking about, and gradually the teachers 
begin to pick up what that means, what that phrase means, and so on. And I used to come home, and I used to teach my family, my wife, um, or friends, I used to teach Ewing Highisms uh, to them. Like, for instance, what does it mean when someone says, why are you all up in my grill? Like, what does that mean? Uh, and should I be offended or delighted? Or, you know, I'm not sure. And so if, if Ewing High students were in this story, I think their expression uh, by, of Saul's actions would be something like, oh boy, homie, don't play. You're like, what are you talking about? This guy's serious. He's chopping up oxen, and he's sending them via UPS or whatever, mail messengers to all of the tribes. And the tribal leaders come, and they open up, and there is the leg of an ox, or there is you know, the, the chest or whatever it may be, with a note that says, your services are requested, and you better show up. Well, we learn from the passage that 330,000 gather to fight with Saul and with Samuel and to protect the people of Jabesh-Gilead and to come against um, this man Nahash, the Ammonite. And they're victorious. And believe me, the people of Jabesh-Gilead will never forget Saul and what he did for them. How he just didn't say to them, you know what? You're so far away, out of sight, out of mind. What do I care about you? You're from the tribe of Manasseh. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm not going to get involved. Saul doesn't say anything like that. And so we begin to be introduced to the character of this man at the beginning of his journey as the king of Israel. He's a man that is not just concerned about himself, but he's concerned about all of the people. And Saul, in many ways, he won the right to rule the people of Israel with the story that we have in 1 Samuel chapter 11. People knew that his heart was for them and not just for himself. Saul is beginning in a great place. He was distinctly called and commissioned by God. He was hand-picked by God to be the leader of the people of Israel. He was honored with a close personal friendship with the, the prophet of the people, Prophet Samuel. He earned a good standing in the nation, and as we'll see with his life in 1 Samuel, that he uh, had a band of men whose hearts were very, very loyal to him. He was a man that had everything in his favor to succeed. But sadly, what we see is that his life ended up a miserable failure. And that's chronicled for us in today's passage that we're going to look at. And I think this is significant for us as men and women that are perhaps seeking to follow Christ in our lives here. I suspect that's why you're here today. You are a follower of Christ or you're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a follower of Christ and is this what I want for my life here? Oftentimes, almost always, we begin very well. We love the Lord. We, we realize that the Lord loves us, that the Lord gave us his own son. We're fired up about that. We'll tell anybody that wants to hear. He's on our minds. He's on our thoughts all the time. But then oftentimes in many people's lives, something starts happening and we begin to drift away from that. We began very well, but sometimes we find ourselves not in the same place that we started before. And we're not doing very well at all in our work, walk with God. Well, today I want to draw our attention to the, the example of Saul, see if we can learn some lessons from where he went off track a little bit, and then maybe see if the Lord would speak to our hearts about how we can call ourselves back or keep ourselves uh, on the right path. If you look at the first Chronicles chapter 10 passage, Verses 1 and 2 say, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Goboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons 
of Saul. Now Saul had four sons. He also had a son whose name uh, is translated different ways in different passages, but Ishbosheth was his son. He's not there at this particular time. But the three sons that are with Saul are there, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, and they die as a result of this particular battle. Now the Philistines, they set up shop, their homeland, if you will, was down in the southern portion of Israel along the western border of the nation or along the Mediterranean Sea, so on that coastal area there. You may know from your news, the Gaza Strip, that area that is called the Gaza Strip. That's where the Philistines lived. Here, uh, in their, their gathering in Mount Goboa to fight, this is about 100 miles northeast of where the Philistines' homeland was. This is up toward the Sea of Galilee, uh, Mount Goboa, Bet-Shean. We're going to go there when we, we travel to Israel in February. So we'll see where Saul and his sons uh, die. But it's about 100 miles north. And the Philistines are advancing. They are attacking. They have surrounded the Israelites there. Uh, and some of the Israelites have already died. And verse 3 says, Then the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was wounded by the archers. Now, what I imagine is taking place here is that the Philistines are on one front, uh, the Israelites are on the other, maybe uh, the archers of the Philistines have gathered themselves a little bit from a high place there, and they're sort of scanning the enemy army, and they're, they're reading it, they're trying to get clues. Is there a weakness that we can exploit? Uh, do we, can we find out where the leader is, the general, the king? Take them out maybe, and the people will be in disarray. And as they're, they're surveying and scanning this, they notice that there's an unusual amount of security in this little section around that particular fellow that's in there. They don't know who that fellow is, but he must be pretty important when you consider all the men that have gathered around him. And they conclude, that's Saul. And it, the passage says, and the archers found him. They said, there he is. And they begin to fire their arrows, all of them do, and, and hundreds of arrows probably are beginning to come. And it says that one of those arrows hits Saul, and Saul falls down onto the ground. Now, in First Chronicles 10, it says that he was wounded. If we go to the parallel passage of 1 Samuel chapter 31, the scripture, just one slight change of words, it says that he was badly wounded. If you have the King James, I love the way it says, he was sore wounded. Now, if we were to look at the translation of that word badly or that word sore, it's a word which means exceedingly much. It's a word which could, means, could mean that he was writhing in pain, or it even means to suffer torture. And so here is Saul on the ground, writhing in a torturous pain, and he knows that he's done for. His, brother, his sons are already dead alongside of him, and he is in this terrible pain. His sons were killed, his army is under bombardment, he's writhing in this pain, and even if he had the physical strength to get up and run, there'd be nowhere to run to. They're surrounded. He's in trouble. And we read in verse 4, his solution it says, and then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. So Saul's solution is essentially to kill himself. I'm dead anyway. The only thing I'm saving here is being tortured uh, by the enemy. And so take my life. And he calls his armor bearer. The armor bearer was a secret service agent of the day whose job it was uh, was to protect the uh, king or whomever it may be with his life 
And so the armor bearer there is being now asked not to protect the king's life, but to take the king's life. And the end of the verse says that he, he just can't do it. It says he feared greatly. Now, we don't know if that meant he was sort of in a state of shock and, you know, he couldn't do anything. Uh, what's your name? Uh, I don't know. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't function. We don't know if that's what it means. Or if it means, no, I won't take your life. I have sworn to uphold your life. I can't do it, even if it's you giving me instruction. We don't necessarily know, but one way or another, Saul realizes that no one uh, and his armor bearer uh, is not going to take his life. So Saul, uh, who's in this writhing, torturous pain, sets up his sword and falls on it. Second uh, Samuel chapter 1, there's a story which may indicate that even though he fell upon his sword, that he didn't necessarily die from that either. That his armor bearer seems to think he died from it, but it, that didn't off him either. And that another man comes and he says, hey, can you help me out and kill me? And that man kills him. That's possible. Or it's possible in 2 Samuel 1 that the man is lying because he's telling David the story and perhaps thinking that David will be like, you killed my enemy? Great, you're the best. Or whatever. Uh, only to discover that's not how David responded. We can look at that another time. But either way, when, when the day is over, Saul has died. Either he's fallen on his sword and killed himself or somebody else came along and killed him. And so we look in verse 5. And it says that his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead and he also fell upon his sword and he died. That's commitment. That's loyalty. This armor bearer uh, was loyal to Saul to the end uh, and takes his own life either knowing or thinking that Saul was now dead. He kills himself. Well, as you move on to verse 6, it says, Thus Saul died. He and his three sons and all of his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and they fled. And the Philistines came and they lived with them. What a dark night for the people of Israel. What a sad day. Here, the Israelites have fled their cities. They've run to the caves. They've run to the tree line. They, they're, they're somewhere where they're relatively safe and they're, they're laying down there in the cold Middle, Middle Eastern night and they're just thinking. Because back in the city, in the house where they worked so hard to build, the house where they quarried the stone for themselves and they build and they set it up and they, they filled the cupboards with food and they've hewn out the cisterns to gather their water, all these sorts of things, the bed that they built by hand or the mat that they put together and so on, and so on there's an enemy that is lying in that bed tonight. And they're out in the cold of the Middle Eastern night. What a dark night it was for them. And it was a very, very sad day. Their king is dead. Their king's sons uh, is dead. And they have to be wondering, God, where are you? God, what's next? God, what do we do? Where do we go from here? Well, the next portion of our story, starting in verse 8, really just adds insult to injury. Notice what it says. It says, the next day when the Philistines, it must have been getting dark, uh, you know, they had shot all the arrows. The, pretty much everyone that was alive fled the field. And, and they essentially said, you know what, let's turn in uh, to uh, these homes. We'll spend our night here. We'll rest. The next morning we'll go out and we'll, we'll take the spoils of war, um, the necklaces, the chains, whatever, the weapons off of the, the dead victims. We'll get that in the morning. So notice verse 8. It says, now the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen upon Mount Geboah. And they stripped him, and they took his head and his armor, 
and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of their gods, and they fastened Saul's head in the temple of Dagon. So the Philistines send messengers throughout the Philistine land to inform their gods and the people. And if your gods need to be informed of the happenings that are going on, then you're serving the wrong god. And so they got to go and inform Dagon and the others, hey, we had a victory, thought you'd like to know. But notice they also fastened Saul's head in the house of Dagon or in the temple of Dagon. The last time that we've learned of the god Dagon, the Philistine god, small g, Dagon, was in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Maybe you know the story. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines and the Israelites had come against one another in battle. The, the Israelites lost that battle. This is long before King Saul ever came on the scene. The Israelites lost that battle, and the Philistines gained control of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was essentially the symbol of the presence of God. Uh, it would find its way when they build the temple, the Israelites build the temple. It is the thing that is in the Holy of Holies with the mercy seat upon it, which the blood of the Passover lamb would be poured out uh, once a year. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, with the two cherubim angels with their wings pointing toward the middle, inside of that was Aaron's rod that budded, the symbol of God's leadership to the, the people of Israel during the days of Moses. Uh, a jar of manna, the symbol of the way that God provided um, miraculously for the children of Israel to survive. Uh, and then also the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments uh, that were given to Moses upon uh, the mount uh, that he received and, and placed in there as well. And this, this box, if you will, symbolized the presence of God. It, it symbolized the Israelite God. And they were defeated. And that clearly means, at least to the people of that day, that the Philistine God was stronger than the Israelite God. So they take this trophy, essentially, this Ark of the Covenant, and they put it in this temple to take Dagon there. Now, Dagon is this statue. And they, they set the statue up right before the Ark of the Covenant. And the next morning when they get up, they come to the place. 1 Samuel 5.3 says, When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. Well, that's disconcerting. But things happened. Maybe there was a little earthquake. You know, maybe some big heavy guy walked outside and shook the floorboards a little. You know, something happened. Our, our God fell down. And so they go and prop their God back up. Now, if you need to prop your God up, you're serving the wrong God. But they nonetheless, they prop up their God. Imagine their terror when the next day they wake up, and this time they find that their God has fallen down on the ground again, just like the night before, except this time his head had been cut off and his hands had been cut off, and they're lying off to the side. And now they're thinking, oh, this is creepy. You know, what's going on here? Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about this. But they persevere, and they battle through. The final straw, however, for the Philistines is given for us in verse 6. It says in 1 Samuel 5, it says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and he afflicted them with tumors. Now, the King James uses the word, not tumors, but he uses the word emrods. Now, what's an emrod? I don't know. I don't want it. Scholars believe that an emrod is a hemorrhoid. This is quite peculiar. God struck the Philistines with hemorrhoids. That's funny and peculiar. Certainly not funny to the Philistines. 
Notice their response. How many of you have, ha no, I'm just kidding. Um, this is, I know, it's horrible, it's terrible. Um, verse five, I've heard, so I've heard. Chapter five, verse seven, it says, now when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. Essentially what the Philistine leaders are concluding is clearly the God of Israel is stronger than our God, Dagon. Get him out of here because we're all going to die if you don't. We give up. Uncle, you know, send him on his way. And they do. But now, some 20 years later or so, the tables have turned. And this time, Dagon has been victorious. And to symbolize that, we, they're taking the head, and you can picture them holding a lock of Saul's hair with just this head hanging from their hand. They're, they're taking Saul's head, and they fasten it. You know, your God one time cut off our God's head. Now we cut off your God's head, symbolized in the leadership of King Saul. Again, as I said earlier, what a sad and what a dark day in the nation of Israel. Well, in the midst of this mourning and this sadness, in verses 11 and 12, we read, But when all Jabesh-Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all of the valiant men arose, and they took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and they brought them to Jabesh. And they buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. Now, you may remember when we, we learned earlier, the people of Jabesh were the ones that the Ammonites came against and said, gouge out your eyes and we'll let you live. And Saul came to their rescue. Well, now you might say they came to Saul's rescue. Saul's dead, certainly. But they, they come and they rescue his body and they give him a proper, bur proper burial and they make sure that the people fast and they mourn for the loss of their king. Well, as we move to verse 13 and 14, essentially we have the conclusion of the chapter. And it says this, it says, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. And also he consulted a medium to seek guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore the Lord put him to death and he turned the king kingdom over to David the son of Jesse. As I said earlier, Saul began well. He was a man of humility. He was a man of character. He was a man who had the confidence of knowing that God had handpicked him and that the people were supporting him. And yet, something changed in Saul's thinking. And then that change of thinking led to a change of, Charles, uh, of Saul's actions. So much so, you read again in verse 13, that it led him to break faith with the Lord and not keep the Lord's commands. There's two passages which highlight this, and they're only given for us about two years after the story of where Saul hid amongst the baggage to become the king. Just about two short years later, uh, Saul breaches the commands of the Lord. 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, in the passage, Saul and Jonathan are again fighting the Philistines. The Philistines are everywhere in, in the book of 1 Samuel. They're always fighting the children of Israel and ultimately always fighting Saul. And in that particular passage, 
if you look closely at it, I think you begin to get a clue, get an idea of how Saul went wrong. How did he go from this guy who wouldn't even show himself and is hiding amongst the baggage and telling Samuel, I can't come to your house. I'm a nobody. I have no right to be there. And how did he go to this guy that was supremely confident in himself and seeking to glorify himself? Where did he go wrong? I think we see it in 1 Samuel 13. In 1 Samuel 13, starting in verse 3, it tells us that Jonathan had raised up a group of about a thousand men. And it said, now Jonathan, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard, all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Notice as the verse begins, Jonathan defeated the garrison. And yet the privilege and the right of the victor went to Saul. And Saul tooted the horn that said we had victory. Not only did Saul toot the horn that said we had victory, but he allowed the people to go on believing that he was the one that gave them victory. Notice what it says at the conclusion of the verse. It said, and all Israel heard it and said, Saul has defeated the garrison. So what I begin to see that is going on here is the people had honored Saul as the new king. They congratulated him as the savior of the people of Jabesh. They were loving him. They were singing his praises. Saul was the hero. And unfortunately, Saul was beginning to believe the press clippings, if you've heard that expression before. He was reading what the papers had to say about him, that he's a wonderful, great, amazing, powerful uh, hero to the people. And he began to like that. And he began to like what he heard, and he was becoming intoxicated with his fame and with his honor and with his accolades. And drunk with that power and that authority and that fame, he was unwilling to share that with anyone else, even his son. And we see that magnified in great degree when David begins to be honored by the people. And, and one group of women, it says, made a big mistake, and they sang a song that Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And Saul couldn't take that. And he determined he was going to kill David as a result because Saul was unwilling to share any of the glory and any of the honor. See, he was the king. He was the one that was to be exalted. He was the one that was to be loved. And there is a great danger for anyone that has ever experienced a measure of success or some accolades in their life or in their ministry or in their occupation. There's a danger to be lifted up in pride. There is a danger to think that somehow you accomplished this great work that God has done. There's a danger to think that the glory, which was originally designed to go to the, our Heavenly Father, is somehow meant to go to you and to I. And Saul put himself in between the people and God, essentially. And he said, you know what, don't bother worshiping the Lord. Worship and serve me. Honor me. Praise me. Give me glory. Recently during a sermon, I shared with you the verse from Proverbs 16, but we'll say it again because it's so significant. It says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Now that verse wasn't written in the days of Saul. King Solomon would write that verse years later, but the principle is still nonetheless true. And if only Saul had learned that principle. But rather than dealing with his pride and putting it to death, so to speak, he nurtured it and it grew, and it grew, and it grew. And eventually, as the scripture says, it led to his destruction. There's an expression for us that are seeking to serve the Lord in one way or another, whether it be officially or just simply, I'm an undercover servant of God. 
go into my place of work each day. But there's an expression, I think, that would be a helpful reminder for each of us that are seeking to serve the Lord. It says, the limb that bears the most fruit always hangs the lowest. The idea that if God chooses to work through you and much fruit is being born in your ministry or in your service, then that limb should bend down and the Lord would be exalted and the Lord would be lifted up. And I'd encourage you, if you begin to notice yourself being lifted up, and do people see what I'm doing? And do people see the size of my home fellowship? And do people see how many kids are coming to our, small, our uh, youth group event? And do people see how good I am at handing out bulletins? And how many smiles I evoke from people? And you begin to draw attention to yourself. Be careful. It's a very dangerous place to be. I remind myself all the time uh, of this important principle is that pride goes before destruction. The Lord has no desire, and you and I have no right to share the Lord's glory. And he'll break us down. He does it in his love and in his mercy. But he'll break us down to remind us he's the one that is to be exalted. So I'd encourage you in that regard. The pride problem that Saul was developing, it is going to become a problem for him for the rest of his life. Essentially from 1 Samuel chapter 13 through the end of that book. There's 31 chapters in that book. Through the end of that book, we, we see again and again and again Saul's pride problem. And eventually it will bring about his destruction. Well, following uh, the victory by Jonathan, that uh, remember he defeated the garrison, he took a thousand men, defeated the garrison. Following that, following Saul tooting the horn and drawing attention to himself, stealing the credit, gathering the men of Israel, they go off into battle again. And this time they head out to the Philistine town of Gilgal. Now Samuel had said a few chapters earlier, make your way to Gilgal and when you get there, wait for me. I'll be there in seven days, and I'll give you instructions as to how to proceed from there. So Saul went, and he waited six and a half days for Samuel to come. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 13, 8, it says that he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Seven calendar days, but not seven full days. And essentially, Saul begins thinking, oh no. The people are leaving. The people are scattering. We're never going to have a great victory. I better do something. If you look at verse 9 of chapter 13, it says, So Saul says, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Saul had waited almost seven full days and no Samuel. And I think in Saul's mind, he said to himself, You know, I've been more than patient. This is getting ridiculous. He tried to do the right thing. Hold on here, folks. He tried to do the right thing, having a sacrifice offered by Samuel before they go off into battle. But you know what? Then he probably said, you know, what's the big deal? Why do we got to wait for Samuel? I know how to cut an animal and throw it on top of a fire. I'll offer the dumb sacrifice and appease the people before we go off into battle. He realized, he reasoned. It tells us in Proverbs 16, it says, there is a way that seems right unto the, a man but the end thereof is death. And wouldn't you know, just as Saul is finishing offering this sacrifice, over the horizon comes Samuel. As soon as it says in 1 Samuel 13, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. And I have no doubt that as Samuel is beginning to make his way over the horizon, he begins to see this pillar of smoke that is coming up from the offering. And he, he's probably beginning to think to himself and maybe pray, 
Don't tell me he did. Don't tell me that Saul thought he was good enough to go and offer some offering. You see, the book of Leviticus is very, very clear that any burn offering, any wave offering, any grain offering, uh, any of the five or six offerings that are introduced to us in the book of Leviticus, it is not the privilege or the right of any old important person, but it is only the, the Levite and it is only the priestly Levites that had the right to do that. Saul had no right to do this. And, and there is Samuel taking all of this in and he comes upon the people and I picture that he is just sitting there sort of shaking his head, not saying a word. He saw the smoke rising up. He sees the animal sacrificed there. He sees all the people have gathered in the way that they would gather for when an offering was going to take place. And he be, just begins to shake his head. The passage tells us that Samuel, or Saul comes out running to him. But Samuel kind of preempts any conversation. And in verse 11 it says, of 1 Samuel 13, he simply says, what have you done? What have you done, Saul? Do you realize the significance of of what has just happened here today. It reminds me of the words that the Lord spoke to Eve in the garden. She had already spoke, he had already spoken to Adam when he said, you know, why are you hiding? But now he speaks to Eve and he says, what have you done? Do you realize what has just occurred here today? There was a way that seemed right to you, Saul, but in the end it's going to bring about your destruction. Well, Saul blames everything, everyone but himself. In 1311b, he says, well, the people were leaving. What was I to do? It's their fault. I wouldn't have done it if they weren't leaving, much like Eve did. In verse 11c, he essentially says, well, Samuel, you were late. If you had gotten here on time, we wouldn't have had this. He begins to blame everything, and, and Samuel's not buying it. Samuel says, no, Saul, you did this. Saul, you decided that the rules didn't apply to you. You were the one who decided that you were some big important guy that shouldn't have to be made to wait. You decided, Saul, to take matters into the, your own hands, and you're the one who's going to experience the consequences of this behavior. And then sitting like a judge, you know, behind his desk up in, or her desk at the front of the courtroom there, Samuel pronounces this. This is Samuel 13. Uh, verse 13, for Samuel, it says, You've done foolishly. You've not kept, kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom of, over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And essentially saying, And you're not him. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people. Well, a chapter later, these two men encounter one another again, and there's sort of an issue that occurs, chapter 15. And Samuel says, you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king. And Samuel turns to leave, and the passage tells us Saul grabs at him, kind of grabs his arm, grabs his coat, and Samuel sort of pulls it, and the coat or the robe rips. And, and Samuel sees that as sort of a great picture and he says, and the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and he has given it to another. That's what the First Chronicles 10, 13 passage is talking about when it says he did not keep the command of the Lord. And from, because of that, the kingdom was taken from him. Now that passage in First Chronicles 10, it also speaks of that he consulted a medium. And that's First Samuel chapter 10, uh, or excuse me, First Samuel chapter 28. And there, Saul has no longer a connection with Samuel. 
He no longer has a connection with God. He has no more direction. He's just winging it, so to speak, and he's desperate for some spiritual direction, as so many people in our day are desperate for spiritual answers. And they'll run to the astrologers, and literally they'll run to the Ouija board, and they'll run to the, the, the people that read your palms, and they'll, they'll go to all these places because they're desperate for some direction into the unknown. And Saul runs to a witch, and there he, he asks for direction. And what a transgression that was against the commands of the Lord that are provided for us. And as a result of that and the, the previous encounter that I just mentioned to you, the kingdom is taken from Saul. He was a man that began so well. And I, I conclude today, and I wonder, that there are probably some of us here that feel like a Saul. You began well. You loved the Lord. You felt you were communing with him on a daily basis. You felt like you were on mission, like we talked about that book, Godspeed, that you were on mission for him, and you were just searching for opportunities that the Lord might use you in the lives of other people. You began well, but things lately have been going from bad to worse. And you've been making one bad decision after another after another, and you know the hole is getting deeper, and it's getting deeper. Saul ended his misery by throwing in the towel, so to speak, and giving up. And you know, maybe you have been. Maybe you've been tempted to give up by literally falling on your sword and killing yourself just to end the misery and the pain. Or maybe it's not that drastic, but maybe you've decided to throw in the towel, so to speak, on your walk with God. This is too hard. I give up. Why bother anymore? I'm failing anyway, and I'm getting deeper in a hole and deeper in a hole, and I'll just fall upon my spiritual sword and kill myself, so to speak. But before you do that, literally or figuratively, take your life, I want to draw your attention to a fellow in the New Testament. First off, you can't help but compare the lives of Judas and the life of Peter. Two men who on that night that Jesus would lose his life, or the next morning when he was lose his life, two men that had a very bad night spiritually and failed miserably. One would run away and kill himself, Judas. The other would run away and repent and return to the Lord with tears and find that the Lord would receive him back. But we have a passage that is given for us in the New Testament. It is the story of the prodigal son. Now the prodigal son, the word prodigal, it means wanderer. So it's the story of the wandering son. The son who went to his dad and he said, Dad, I know you're a rich man. I know I'm going to inherit so much when you die. Could you just die already so I can have that money? I don't really care about you, but I want that money that is in your bank account. And his dad can read between the lines, and he knows what his son is saying when his son comes to him and he says, can I just have my share of the inheritance? And the dad gives his son the share of the inheritance, and the scripture says that the son goes and he spends it all, he wastes it all in riotous living and in partying. And the scripture also tells us that uh, his life with these self-destructive behaviors was going from bad to worse to worse to worse. And that he eventually finds himself in a hole, essentially. In a, in a pig um, sty is where he finds himself. And the scripture says that he came to himself. And he realized that he had wasted so much opportunity. And he had wasted this relationship with a father that loved him so much that even though essentially his son was saying, I wish you would just die already, but he would love him anyway and he would give and he would give and he would give. 
And the scripture again says that he came to his senses and he returned to his father. He realized his great error. He repented of his decision. He returned to his dad. And I love this because it's the picture of our heavenly father. And his dad stood there with his arms open wide. The scripture says that his dad did the most foolish of things. He, he hiked up his long robe, which was a symbol of his honor. He's a man that didn't have to work every day, so to speak, for a living. And he hikes that up above his knees so that his knees are unhindered, and he runs to meet his son. An elderly man in Israel and a man of great stature and wealth would never do such a thing. But this, didn't man, this man didn't care if he looked like a fool. And he ran out to meet his son, and he gives his son, and I suspect the son is sitting there with his head down, and he had memorized his speech, Dad, I'm a failure. Dad, I blew it. Dad, I'm so sorry. And his dad is standing there with his arms open wide, and he says, it's okay. I forgive you. I've always loved you, and I could not wait for this day, and I'm so delighted for this day. You see, Saul could have returned to the father, even with the arrows sticking through him, and repented. And I believe with all of my heart that God would have received him back. Judas could have repented, perhaps, but didn't. Peter did. The prodigal did, and God received him. And maybe today you are realizing you're a prodigal. You've wandered from the Lord. For some of us in here, you know, it's been five years, seven years. For others of us, we've had a bad week. And we've wandered away from the Lord for seven days or so. But out of habit, we've dragged ourselves to church. And we're wondering, will God receive me back? The answer to the scripture, everyone can say it, yes. God will receive us back. We know this. We have a father that is longing to receive any wanderer back whether you've wandered way away from the, the pen or just a little bit down the road, the Father will receive you back. The Scripture says if you confess your sin, that God is faithful and that God is just and that God will forgive you and that God will cleanse you. The devil will tell you, and we know the ministry, if we want to use that word of the devil, is to steal, to kill, and destroy. And the devil will say, you know what, just give up. Just bag it, the whole thing. It's not even worth the effort anymore. You've gone too far, and God and those people will never receive you back. The reality is that's a lie. And the message I think that God would have from us is not to believe the lie. Is that we return, would return this morning, let the Lord embrace us, let Him forgive us, stop with our excuses and our sorries and our sobs, and just let Him say, I forgive you, I wash you, I cleanse you, I love you. The Lord loves us. Some of us haven't wandered. We're doing fine. It was a good week in the Lord. We've been seeking Him. We've been finding Him in the daily. Then my suggestion to you, and, and that, honestly, that's where I'm at today. It was a good week. The Lord was real and present in my life. And so we all don't have to be, you know, coming to the altar, so to speak, this morning. So some of us are doing well. My encouragement to you is to be reminded Saul was doing well. But somewhere a thinking switched in his mind that led him down a destructive path. And so I'd encourage you, search out your heart. Is there a way of stumbling that is found in there that ultimately, if you keep down that path, will trip you up and cause your destruction? And if there is, bring it now. Before you trip over it, bring it now to the Lord and say, Lord, I submit this to you. I don't want to go astray. I want to walk in your ways. Amen, friends? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the so many different examples in the Scripture. Lord, some that are positive for us to learn from, some that are negative that uh, we can 
we can learn from as well and thus avoid the mistakes. And, and Lord, we want to do that. Lord, every one of us, we, we, if we've begun a relationship with you, it began in a great place. We came with bent knee before, before the cross of Christ. We fully acknowledged that it was the work of Christ on the cross that set us free from our sins. We humbly submitted ourselves, Lord. Like a physician, like a, a sick person, we knew that we were so incredibly beyond repair that we could only be healed by the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ. We began well. Lord, we want to continue well, and certainly we want to finish well. So, Father, this morning, Lord, I, I especially want to pray for the one that has wandered away. Lord, that you would bring them back to yourself. Lord, your, your word, or not your word, but just uh, hymns and other things that were, it speaks of you, Lord, as wooing us back unto yourself. And, Father, with your great love, Lord, with your arms open wide, with your foolish action of running out with your, your robe hiked up to find us, with your loving embrace, Lord, with the tears that were, are coming from your very eyes, would you welcome them back, Lord, to yourself? Would you take off their spotted, soiled, ripped-up clothes and give them a new robe? Would you bless them again with the sweetness of fellowship, Lord, as you prepare, so to speak, the fatted calf that they may enjoy the meal once again in the Father's palace? Father, do that work. Draw people back to yourself, I ask, desperately in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we all pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if that's you, we want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. We want to help you solidify that decision. So there'll be prayer counselors outside the door meeting to pray with you. If you've never given your life to Christ, you've never started a relationship with him that you've wandered away from, you can do that today as well. And the prayer counselors will help you in that process. Let's all stand. Let's pray. Let's finish up in worship. Over me while I 